They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 8 The Hungarian Connection Now, one of the things I'm discovering about producing a podcast as the investigation is actually happening is that sometimes your investigation takes you off in a completely unexpected direction. You simply have to follow the truth wherever that direction takes you. Now the upside of that is that you are really on the journey with me as it's happening. The downside, sometimes those little entices that I put at the end of previous podcasts turn out not to be particularly accurate. And last week I thought this podcast would be about something a little bit different. I started out with the intention this week of describing a half a mile radius around the deposition site and how it would have looked in 1969 and what was going on. My start point on that was going to be digging a little bit deeper into the mill. So far, so good. In fact, very good, because this is where the Facebook group set up by Neil DeVille paid great dividends. I put a post up on there asking for any information about the mill from around that time and if anyone could remember it and I got a great reply. You may recall from episode 2 David Nathan mentioned that the manager of the mill was a man called Joe Marston who lived in the house across Newton Road from the bridge. Joe knew everything there was to know about the mill but sadly and unsurprisingly Joe had passed away by now. But the reply I got put me in contact with Peter Marston, his son, who grew up in the 60s in that house and knew the mill and the people who worked in the mill like the back of his hand. So I made contact with Peter and we had a long discussion about the mill. He corrected some of the things I'd assume were right and I'm very, very grateful for that. And he gave me a great insight to the mill and who was around in the late 60s. And who he told me was around in the late 60s took me on that unexpected journey. A journey that ended up taking me all around the world, but brings us tantalisingly close to an answer. Now, this podcast presented me with something of a challenge. There was about two and a half hours of interviews that I'm trying to cram into one podcast. So in order to do that, I'm going to summarise the conversation I had with Peter Marston, the first one, and I'm going to play you the second one. During my long conversation with Peter Marston, he confirmed a number of key things. Firstly, the mill was owned by the Greensmith family. It was known as Greensmith's Mill. Joe Marston, Peter's father, was in charge of the mill. He was the mill director. Everybody answered to him. They lived as a family in a house directly opposite across Newton Road from the bridge, 
with a direct line of sight and hearing to the bridge. So, what did Peter tell me about the mill? Firstly, the gates on the bridge were not a recent addition. They'd been there decades before. He describes parking in front of the gates in the early 60s. He was a member of a scout group that used to canoe beneath the bridge and the gates also around the start of the 60s. I had previously been told that the gates were a relatively recent construction around 1968. I am satisfied based on what Peter knows about the mill that they had always been there. No one ever had access, free access across that bridge to that island. Secondly, at the time of the burial, both sides of the river was land owned by the mill. Greensmith family were not the kind of people to have the public on their land and they wanted to make sure that they had ownership of both sides of the weir and both sides of the bridge. If nothing else, for safety reasons, but also to protect an asset which was absolutely critical to the running of the mill. Thirdly, the keys to the gates on the bridge were kept at the house with David Nathan and Garth Hapgopsel, and there was a set locked in the mill office. The mill worked a 24-hour shift pattern, six till six, and then another six till six. It employed around 17 to 18 people at the time, none of whom went missing at the time or immediately before. According to Peter, no one except the mill manager and maybe his number two ever went over that bridge from the mill. Occasionally, the water authorities would need to get over that bridge in order to clear some debris and that kind of thing. And there was one occasion in 1965 when Peter had to open the gates because another body had been found washed downstream but had landed at that point. I also asked him the question about Anthony Hardy being a mechanical engineer. Was there any chance of him ever working at the mill? To his knowledge, Anthony Hardy never worked at that mill. Peter was absolutely adamant that no one would have been able to get a body through or over or around those gates and therefore the body could only have been deposited from Bass's Meadow side. But he did agree that the perpetrator must have known about the site. I asked him if there was anyone from Hungarian or Eastern European heritage that ever worked at the mill. He said he thought there was someone who came over after the war around that kind of time. He mentioned that the mill owned two cottages attached to the mill in the Newton Solney direction. They were occupied by key staff who needed to be close to the mill as it ran 24 hours a day continuously. One was occupied by what he called the roller man, essentially the mill engineer. The other, a semi-skilled person who, who also helped out in the mill. I asked him if he'd ever heard of a man, a Hungarian man, called Ferenc Kun, or maybe Frank Kun, because a lot of people anglicised their names, who had emigrated to Australia in about 1970. Peter, after some thought, confirmed that Frank Kun was the roller man who lived in the mill cottage 
126 Newton Road, Windsill. So, there was a Hungarian working at the mill at the time of the murder. Ferenc or Frank Kun. Ferenc Kun had appeared in my Hungarian marriage information, though much earlier. He was married back in 1956 in Derby. He married Waltraud Kruger and in 1958 they had a daughter called Zoe who attended Burton Grammar School. She grew up at that mill. So my next job was to find them, but how? Thanks for downloading the Mysterious Case of Fred the Head podcast. I really appreciate you doing that. And I hope you're enjoying the journey that we're all on. It definitely feels like we're getting warmer. If you are enjoying it, do me a favor. Please leave a rating on wherever you download the podcast. The higher we get up in the ratings, the more people know about the case. The more people will be able to help us solve it. Anyway, let's get back to the story. So, I've got a problem. I need to find the Kun family in Australia. Firstly, I searched for social media. There was no Frank Kun, there was no Ferenc Kun, there was no Zoe Kun. There was, though, a Valtraud Kun, an old lady, maybe 85. She had posted one post on Facebook six years ago. To be honest, I feared the worst. She'd probably passed away in the meantime. But then I found she had a second account. And thanks to Kim Macbeth and David Adkins for some help on that. This account had only two posts on it from seven years ago. But one of the posts had a reply from someone called David Crabtree in Australia. So... With some trepidation, I messaged David Crabtree and he got back to me straight away. Turns out he's Waltraud Kuhn's grandson and Zoe Kuhn's son. And he was a pretty straight talking Aussie. When I said, do you think she'd be okay if I sent her a message and talked to her? He said, Here's a number, just ring her mate. So, 15 minutes later, I was about to speak to Zoe Kun in Australia. And this is the recording of that conversation. And what she told me and what she's about to tell you are things that I think completely change this investigation. She's never been interviewed before by the police or anyone else, and nor has anyone in her family because they were all in Australia, but I think it allows us to take a very major step forward. But let's see what you think. Hello. Hello, is that Zoe? It certainly is. Zoe, my name's Ken Davis. I'm very grateful for your uh, your son's help in, in uh, getting to speak to you. Who's, uh, who's investigating the finding of a body on the island across from where I grew up managed to track 
any of us down. <laughs> well, that's kind of you. It's taken a, it's taken about two years. You know that we were at 126 Newton Road. I do know that. The community around that area is still fascinated about the case and why it's been so difficult to solve because there's some very unusual aspects of the case. I was talking to this. This is how I got to you. I was talking to the son of the guy who ran the mill. Was a guy called Joe Marston. And that's right, Joe Marston. That's right. And he's long deceased. I was talking to his. I got hold of his son because I wanted to know about the mill because the mill obviously was operational at the time. The body was found across the bridge that was used by the mill, all that kind of stuff. And in a separate kind of development, it, the, the university here in Derby did an investigation into the skull that was found uh, about five or six years ago. And one of the things they did, which was a new piece of software, funny enough by an Australian criminologist, uh, they ran a, a software program with the skull and identified that there was a the highest probability of his nationality was Hungarian. Uh, yeah, that's what David said, which makes me think that almost certainly my father knew this person. I, as part of a different piece of work on this, had gone through all the Hungarian marriages in the area for the last ten years, and I came right. and I came across Ferenc Kuhn being married to a lady called Kruger, uh, called That's right. Waltraud Kruger, um, and who, who is now living in Düsseldorf. So I understand, which is fantastic. Oh, I've, I've, I've pulled out the photo albums with the black and white photos of this era, when okay. David called me, Okay. and I'm just looking at the, at the various things and thinking, you know, so how old would this person have been in, say, 69? Right, if he... The, the chances are he died in 69 and that the when it was sent to the Smithsonian Museum in New, New York to get a proper age on this back in the 70s and they yeah. said the mean age they expect him to have been was around late 20s but he could have been he could have been as young as 19 he could have been as old as mid 30s yeah. late okay. 30s so, so he's definitely in the age group that my dad would have known him I'd say if that's the case, if he was Hungarian, if he was Hungarian, he may he may not be Hungarian. It's, a, it's these are not certainties; yeah. they are merely probabilities. Look, anything in, in that sort of Eastern European area, Romanian, yeah. Austrian, any of those sort of people, my dad was likely to know them anyway. He did a lot of translating for the police at that time, um, and and so he got to because dad spoke oh, eight languages. Um, and, and so any time somebody turned up at the police station and they, and they couldn't talk to him, they'd come and get my dad. Was he known as Frank at the time or was it still Ferenc? Um, he was called Frank. But his original name was Ferenc when he was in, when he was in Hungary. That's right, yes. And did he come over after the 1956 uprising or did, was it earlier than that? Um, I think he came over in 51 if I remember rightly. Okay. Yeah, because at, at the end of the war... He was in Russian-occupied territory, and they gave him the choice of, of uh, did you did he want the, the local barber's shop or did he want to go somewhere else? He decided to go travel the world. By the way, uh, it must be late with it must be really late with you uh, because it's half past eleven here. I, I do quite a lot of work here in Australia, and I know presumably it's about half past ten in the evening for you, is it? No, it's eight thirty. Oh, that's not too bad. I don't feel so guilty about it then. <laughs> 
The other unusual thing about this person is that he had a wedding ring on, but the wedding ring was worn on the right wedding ring finger, which I am told is fairly common with married men in Central and Eastern Europe, in certain countries, Germanic countries generally. I have, I have seen that. It tends to be more your, your Czechoslovakians and Romanians and Yugoslavians. And the other unusual thing about this person was that the wedding ring he, he wore was a women's wedding ring. Now, that only means he had very tiny hands. He had the, the hands of a woman. He was a man with the hands of a right. woman. So although he was like five foot eight, he had very, very slim hands, which is unusual. Mm, it is, yeah. One thing that David did mention was a, a name of someone. It's a very, very vague memory um, mm. of somebody saying, whatever has happened to Yoji. Oh my word. Um, and I, we, we left in September 69. And, and I have a vague memory that this was actually quite a bit earlier um, in the year. I think it was before we went to Switzerland and Germany that year, which I think was about April or May. But, yeah, I remember somebody saying something about that. And there was some mystery. I was a 10 or 11-year-old child and I wasn't particularly concerned about my parents' friends. But it was a woman asking my dad. So that's actually fitting That's actually fitting in a little bit with what you're saying. I have, And it's just a vague memory of somebody coming to our house one evening, just as it was getting to be dusk. And it, it couldn't have been any later than, than September 69. But I suspect that it was probably close, closer to the end of winter. And there was a lady at the door, she had somebody else with her, and she was looking for a Yoshi. Oh my word. Um, and it just, it, it just, it's a possibility. It, it's just when, when David said they found somebody on the island, it just made me think of that. That's amazing, because, uh, no, it's the first time in two years somebody has said someone was looking for someone. So you'd left by then. The body was discovered on the 26th of March 1971. Right, so we were already over here and probably didn't hear anything about it. But he was killed in 69. Right. I don't think my dad did it. No, I don't think your dad did it either. There was, I've got a vague idea that it was Yosef and Illy Nagy that were with the woman, but again, that might not be it either. They, the the Nagy's lived in Derby. In looking around for my dad's address book from that era. Oh my word. Because I believe, I believe I've still got that, which would probably have such people's names and addresses in them. I'm just in the process of packing my entire house up, putting it into a shipping container onto a block of land so I could build a house. So your, your timing is actually fortuitous in that I've just gone through all the boxes of photographs that when my mother went to Germany, she she passed all these boxes of stuff on to me. I didn't even realise she hadn't taken all the photos with her. And they sat in the carport for 10 years, not opened. And just this last three weeks, I've been pulling all these photos out from the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, Many of the photographs are, in fact, of course, of, of the area like the weir just behind yep. behind the mill. Exactly. Well, this is maybe fateful. Well, I used to camp on that island. Did you? There, there was there was an old barn there. The island was was very 
lush because it was basically a flood. Uh, uh, yeah. It gets flooded every year. And still and does, it by the way. Lush. And so um, Farmer Shepherd, who had a, a place up in Windhill, um, used to put his pregnant cows over there. And it was uh, it was one of my favourite places to go. I've, I've got this thing about cows. I still love cows. Yeah, and I used to go over there all the, all the time. And then when the cows weren't there... There was nothing actually happening then, and the big old barn was just a great place for me and my girlfriends to just go and camp. How did you get over within, there? Within sight of my house, yeah. well, we just we just walked walked around across the, the bridge at the mill. The the bridge at the mill though had gates on, didn't it? Yeah, but my dad ran the mill. Now okay. got my dad. See, I don't know whether you, whether you were aware of this, but they actually had that mill running um, in the big. There was, a, there was a big oil crisis back in the 60s, about yeah. 65, 66, something around there. Yeah, yeah. And my dad actually made all the, all the turbines and everything work, and we were running the mill when nobody had, had, had oil or, or diesel or whatever to run all their mills all around the countryside. Dad had actually already got the thing because he was watching the news and Cuban Missile Crisis yeah. and things like this, and, and he said, things are not going well. So he spent every Sunday fixing up um, all the turbines and things so that the mill could start running off the um, off the off the river trent instead yeah it, it was a water and, water powered um, mill that's right yeah and um yeah when mr greensmith said we're going to have to you know, basically we can't, can't run any more shifts we can't you know we, we can't get the diesel to run the mill anymore my dad had me go across to where the wheel was to open the sluice gates mm-hmm. and he said off you go, and I, I went over there, pulled the sluice gates, and the mill started to run. Amazing. And Mr. Greensmith was so pleased. Um, Mr. Marsden was, was thrilled too, because they had no idea my dad had been fixing up all the old works. He, he and Mr. Bannister were the shift bosses for the two shifts. There were two 12-hour shifts, because um, the mill used to start at 6 o'clock on Monday morning and close at 6 o'clock on Friday night. And then, and then it was closed on the weekends, which is where Dad used to do all the maintenance. Yeah, well, he, he spent probably six months um, on weekends getting the thing ready and then totally surprised management by just saying, oh, no, we won't have to close the mill. We'll just run it off the, off the river instead. So you spent time on that piece of land then? Oh, yeah. I, I, look, the mill was my, my place where I played when I was a child. I used, used to um, ride my scooter down the hill and then like, I, you go down from my house and then almost up to where the, the Royal Oak pub was yeah. um, on, the, um, on the driveway. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was a great place to live. The Yoji thing is the only thing that I, can have any, that I have any vague memory of, but I'm going to go through all these photographs here and, and see. There are quite a lot of photos of young men around that sort of age from that period, so... It's, it's even possible that one of the people in one of these photos might be your missing person. That would be unbelievable. When you went onto the island, it's not the kind of place, the island, where many people went onto. Did you come across people on that island or was it essentially no one ever there? Look, I was probably one of the few people, apart from Farmer Shepherd putting his cows on and off, yeah. Um, I was one of the few people that actually spent much time on there, I think. Yeah, I think that's um, probably true. I mean, some, sometimes I went across with the canoe too, because our house had a, a landing landing dock, like a fishing fishing dock, 
um, at the bottom of the garden. Yes. And we had a couple of canvas canoes that Dad had found in the river and repaired. Yeah. Um, at one stage, when the when the river was low, he, he found a you know, couple of broken canoes. He made made them into not broken canoes. Oh, fantastic! And um, and yeah, I used to often um, go up up to where the, the the water came out of the mill. And um, and other times, yeah, there was if you went around to the other side of the island from our house, there was a little beach there that you could you could actually pull your canoe back up onto. Okay. Um, and it was it was a good place because I I could hear my mother if she screamed for me, but she didn't know where I was. That sounds like a win-win. The other, yeah, it was. <laughs> the other the other person. Well, who... when you're an only child, you want to get away from your parents a lot of the time. I've just got this photograph of a woman with a baby and a, and a man with with glasses, and I've just got this vague idea that that's about our period. When I was looking through the photos, this woman sitting here with a young baby, and this is, this has got to be late sixties. Yeah, I'd say these photographs are. Yeah, there's a woman here with a baby with, with a baby and, a, and a, ba- a baby on its own and a and a guy. And I just think that that woman is the one that came to the door looking for Yoji, whether I'm right or not. But I, I, I have a vague vague thought that that might be her. Just when I saw the when I saw the photograph as, as I was going through the through the album after I spoke to David, I stopped at that one and said, I think it was her. We are digging up a very old memory. I appreciate you trying to do it. Is the man that she's with in that photograph Yoji? Oh no, she's not. She, no, this is just—it's a photograph that was that was associated in the same photo packet. And what I've done is I've put them onto the same sheet when I've been mounting them on, onto the pages. There's just the the look of the of the, of the woman when I saw her saw her picture in the in the. Um, in, in the album, I just thought I don't have any memory when when I was that age of us having a lady who was a friend of my dad's or my parents with a baby, which strikes me it strikes me as a little bit odd. Which may also mean that this photo is a little bit older than I'm thinking it is. That's a possibility too. But it's in oh, with it's no. in with some pictures of of the time that we we think we're talking around though. If it's in the same package. Yeah, I think. I think so. I wonder who these guys are. It wasn't like my dad to take photographs of babies. And you think that's the woman that was asking who Yoja? It's a possibility. She's got dark hair and she looks Eastern European to me. The baby looks like a baby as they do. (laughs) Um, One thing, by the way, I shouldn't mention to you. The body that was found, although, you know, the cranium was... Hungarian, they believe, and the ring would suggest an Eastern European. He had fairly light hair, almost light brown hair. Curly? Possibly. Why? Oh, the reason I'm asking is because of this this photograph that is you know, possibly possibly contemporaneous with with the lady who I think this guy with the he, it's hard to tell what the fellow looks like because he's got his damn tongue sticking out, light brown curly hair. Because they're that unusual for someone from Central Europe. Yeah, yeah, it is a little bit. Although, um, oh, now there you go. I think you're the key to this mystery, by the way. Oh, God, I hope not. Estonian. There was an Estonian oh. person. And did they live yeah. locally? or? No, I think he was from Derby as well. Yeah, um, I think Estonians 
sometimes I like light. Yes, indeed. Um, More Scandinavian. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there was there was an Estonian fellow. That, that's not Yodger, presumably, or is it? How would your dad know an Estonian, by the way? I mean, was, was it the um, fact that he was from Europe and, and therefore all those kind of people congregated together in, in a community in some way? I think it was mostly about the language. As a, as a child, I, I remember people in our front room gabbling away in some foreign, foreign tongue, not Hungarian or German, um, with my dad. Because he spoke Russian and he spoke Norwegian, I think it was. The police would find some person who they couldn't understand um, and come and get dad. And occasionally those people ended up being added to his social circle. Presumably the non-criminal ones. I need to ask you about something. This, this, this is a really weird turn in the investigation, but I wanted, I wanted to talk to you about it. Did you ever know a guy called Tony Hardy, Anthony Hardy, from school? Uh, I have a vague memory, but but only very, 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 very vague. Quite a big, um, quite a big guy. Very, very bright. Uh, very intelligent indeed. A bit older than you. You were born in fifty-seven. Yeah, I was born in fifty-seven. That's what I'm thinking. I, I, I'm thinking this might have been the the friend of the older brother or sister of somebody I knew. Did did he did he go to Burton Grammar School? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He was born in 51 and then went to Imperial College London. Right. I, uh, I couldn't give you a, a face or anything like that at all. The reason I ask is that he ended up being a serial killer. Oh, crikey. He killed three women and probably six more in London in 2000. But tried to kill, wow. his, tried to kill his wife in Australia. Oh, lovely. In Tasmania. Well, I'm, I'm glad I, I don't have any real memory of it. Yeah. Winch Hill only had 7,000 people in 1969, and one of, them yeah. was, one of them was a serial killer. And we have a, yeah. body, we have a body in Winch Hill that no one can identify, either the person or the, or the perpetrator. Okay, the, I've, I've got a question for you, Pep. Yeah. Um, was the person found clothed, and were the clothes men's clothes? No, he wasn't. He was found naked, but tied up and buried. Oh. But the only piece of clothing on him, there were two things he had socks on that were bought in Burton uh, and a ring on his right wedding ring finger. Incredible information because well, he was five foot eight, very slim, could easily pass for a woman in terms of his physical attributes. Yeah, well, just when you were saying about that Anthony Hardy and, and the, the killing, killing women in, in London, it just made me think of that possibility. I was with my dad out in the car, now let me see, that was the light blue Cortina LRS 9B, so that would have been, would have been prior to 67 that we gave this young fellow a lift and we dropped him off near Nancy Freeman's house in Winfield. She lived opposite the shops 
there mm-hmm. was like a little level area with, with shops in Windhill. Um, and she lived opposite there. She was a seamstress. And we dropped the young fellow off there. You wouldn't remember no. her name? No, but um, but I remember we, we, we dropped, dropped him off there and he went upstairs above one of the shops. So there must have been a flat or something above one of the shops. And my dad said to me, sometimes if I saw him and he was wearing ladies' clothes, I shouldn't embarrass him. What road? Um, I don't know the name of the damn road. I can picture it in my mind. Um, was he up Mill Hill Lane and those kind of ways? Well, like you said, you go up Mill Hill Lane and then you turn right up at... That's where Anthony oh, really? Harley lived, yeah. There was a place... Past the Queen's Hotel on the, the road that goes from the Swan Pub past the Queen's Hotel yeah. to the other side of Burton. Yeah. Fairly well down there, there was a club there. And my dad had something to do with the person who owned it. I think he was Romanian. And I think that that's how my dad knew this young fellow. Because he used to he used to perform that. I think so. Yeah, I, I think he, I think he was a, I think he was somebody who performed as a woman on stage. And I I I've got an idea that the club was probably an illegal casino. Looking back on it now, I know my dad wasn't a gambler, but somehow he knew some of the people. Well, it sounds like they were all know. from the same kind of community, maybe or certainly Eastern European. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I think this this was it. Yeah, the, the, there were people that he knew. Um, one of the guys I know bought birds off my dad, and that might have even been the, the thing. Cause dad bred birds when we were living in Newton Okay, okay. So that was my conversation with Zoe Cunn. Some extraordinary memories. What an extraordinary lady. And I hope there'll be more to come from Zoe. But we have got some unbelievable new leads from that it's worth recapping the key people she mentioned and remember all of these people are of eastern european origin so may well not be within the system that the police were searching through when they were looking for the missing person so firstly from around the time of the murder a family came to the kun household and Frank Kuhn, who seems to be something of a community leader, they asked him about what happened to Yoji. They came asking Frank for help in finding this person called Yoji. In fact, when I first contacted David Crabtree before I'd spoken to Zoe, and I mentioned to him that a body had been found, his first question to me was, was it Yoji? So. Who is Yoji? Why was he missing? And what became of him? And who was the woman that was looking for him? Secondly, this mysterious Estonian from Derby with the fair hair. Don't know much about him, but she definitely remembers him clearly. I need to track him down. And of course, the female impersonator, cross-dresser, who performed at an illegal gambling den in Burton. This lead, perhaps, sounds the most promising. And in a way, we've kind of come full circle. Remember when Fred was initially found back in 1971? The initial rumour around Burton was a woman had been found. 
was the reason that the clothes were removed to disguise the fact that it was a man in woman's clothing who had been killed. We know that Fred was a thin man with short hair, which, remember, was pretty uncommon in 1969. Was the short hair easier for female wig to fit over? We know he had feminine hands and they were extremely well kept. But we know because of the dental records, his appearance was very, very important to him. He also lived very close indeed, perhaps within two streets of Anthony Hardy. So this podcast has got some work to do. I need to find out everything I can about these three possibilities. A key to that actually may be Zoe Kun's mother, Valtraud. She's in a nursing home in Dusseldorf in her late 80s, so that might be difficult. She does, though, I understand, communicate by email, and I've sent her an email. I need to know from Valtraud everything she remembers about what happened in 1969. Until next week, goodbye. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSC Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis. <laughs>